Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Thank you for joining us for episode 21 of Clear and Convincing. We'll be talking about September 11th and looking back on it, and then we'll move on to State of Oklahoma versus Wanda Jean Allen where we'll be discussing the case against Allen, her self-defense and diminished capacity claims, and her controversial execution on January 11, 2001. Tonight is the 17th anniversary of September 11, 2001. That morning, 19 men hijacked four commercial airplanes in a coordinated attack on the United States. Two of those planes were flown into the North and South Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. The third struck the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, and the fourth was crashed by the hijackers in a field outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania, when the passengers began a counter-assault to regain control of the airplane. The loss of life was staggering, and the events of 911 have had an impact both big and small on countless friends and family members and continues to impact the lives of survivors, first responders, and those who witnessed the events of that day and the weeks and months that followed. 
As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. How are you tonight, Michael? I'm pretty good. You know, you mentioned a lot of things about uh, September 11th, and I just want to share a quick story about it. You know, I was obviously in the military. I served from... uh, 2009 to 2011 in the U- in the Air Force. I was stationed up at McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. And one of the uh, veterans groups I'm friends with on Facebook kind of made me have a feel old yet moment a second ago. I told you about it right before we came on the air, but mm-hmm. I posted a of, uh, of some people swearing in, and it said that 2019 will be the first year that people who joined because of September 11th will be serving with people who weren't even alive on September 11th. That is absolutely crazy to me to think of how long ago this was, and it still feels like it was yesterday. I mean, it's just like, you know, I remember people telling me when I was a kid, yeah, this is going to be your your generation's Kennedy or your generation's Challenger, and, you know, mm-hmm. you're always going to remember where you were when it happened and sure enough I can still tell you the first time I heard about it I was in the uh, Sylvan Hills in Sherwood Arkansas I was in the Sylvan Hills uh, middle school library and somebody came up and said uh, a plane struck the tower and I remember believing thinking before I saw the news reports that they were talking about the uh, control tower at the local airport here in Little Rock Mm -hmm. the built now called the Bill Clinton uh, National Airport. So uh, definitely, you know, crazy to think uh, what happened on this day 17 years ago. Good Lord, if 9-11 was a human being, it could drive a car at this point. And, you know, another Mm -hmm. thing I want to bring up before we move on, I definitely want to let everybody that listens to our show in South Carolina and the uh, eastern seaboard over there, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you as you get ready to deal with the Hurricane Florence. And, I mean, unless they're just blowing smoke, it's looking like it's going to be bad. I believe uh, right now it's a hurricane. It's a Category 4 hurricane with uh, sustained winds at 140 miles an hour. And I believe that is, unless I'm mistaken, Katrina slammed New Orleans as a 3 or 4. No. Katrina was a 5. And Katrina was massive. Yeah, Katrina was. Um, I believe that I thought right before it struck landfall, it went down to a three or a four. No, as I recall, uh, she when she went across Florida, she mm-hmm. went down, and then she picked up more steam in the Gulf. And I want to say she was a five. That's why you oh. saw the devastation on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. We were on the western edge, which generally being on the western edge is you get wind and you get rain, but it's not as bad as being on the center or, or to the east. But for Katrina, because it was it was such a huge storm, it impacted far west of where the eye struck. Because I think Katrina made landfall in... I want to say Bay St. Louis or Biloxi or Gulfport. Uh, 
somewhere in Mississippi. I can't remember exactly yeah, right. where. I want to say. But no. Category four is is a uh, a pretty dangerous storm, and and yeah, my thoughts are with everybody on the eastern seaboard that's in the in the potential path because mm-hmm. they are not really they're not used to dealing with those kind of conditions. Yeah, I mean, I remember I lived in South Carolina growing up. Uh, I believe I was four or five in a hurricane, and I can't even remember the name of it. I slept through it, as a matter of fact. But I remember a hurricane coming through, and, I, I, I mean, it was just a weak little thing, honestly, like Category 1, Category 2. But it was enough mm-hmm. to let us out of school and so on and so forth. So, I mean, they're used to hurricanes, just not monsters like this thing. Yeah. Yeah, this this one is it's, it is looking for to be bad, and unfortunately, um, I saw something on on Facebook that it it's funny, but it's not funny. I know, uh, but a hurricane waiting for a hurricane is like being stalked by a turtle because you have days and days and days where you don't know what is going to happen, and you know you it's not like a, a tornado where the siren goes off and you have a very short period of time to decide what you want to do. Um, But, um, so yeah, it is, it is, uh, I'm hoping that by the time she makes landfall, she'll blow herself out. Yeah, that's definitely. Can and does happen. Absolutely. And, you know, definitely you hope, kind of like I remember last year, a lot of people thought Irma was going to come in, but it, you know, came in like mm-hmm. a lamb. A lot of people thought it was going to be pretty rough, but, you know. Well, I think me. last weekend, Monday, last week, uh, Monday and Tuesday, Labor Day weekend was supposed to be a hurricane. They closed all the schools. And, I mean, we didn't get any rain. <laughs> it just right. completely puttered out before it made landfall anywhere. Right. I, I can't remember, remember the name uh, of it now. It's that's how memorable it was. <laughs> was there was yeah, exactly. there was nothing. My girlfriend just went to uh Gulf Shores over the last uh week and she actually uh which was one of the places I believe that was supposed to be heavily impacted by the storm mm-hmm. and she I asked her I believe it was either last night or today, and I asked her if anything was going on or if she saw any damage or anything, and she said no, she didn't see anything. So, I mean, hopefully, you know, we get a, same, a similar scenario here with uh, Lawrence. Hopefully she blows out pretty quick and she uh, yeah, she uh, doesn't do much damage. But, you know, definitely want, to, want everybody out there to stay prepared for the ability that yeah. this thing can not only stayed the same strength, but, you know, who knows, it may move up. So definitely want everybody to be prepared out there. Yeah, definitely. Stay safe. If they give you a vacu- if your municipality, state, county says evacuate, evacuate. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, we're talking about 9-11 here in the early part of this show. Let's talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. the kind of, I call them the unsung heroes of 9-11, you know, the people that lost their uh, lives in 9-11, the planes and the passengers carrying them. Uh, 
let's talk a little bit about those. Well, the first plane, uh, American Airlines Flight 11, uh, it was a Boeing 767. There were 87 passengers and crew on board. And the uh, plane was going from Boston's Logan Airport to Los Angeles LAX. Um, That plane struck the tower, uh, the North Tower, at 8.46 a.m. All of the passengers were killed. Uh, And one of the passengers on that flight, because I want to look at one person from each area, and a couple of, of people that have just always moved me with their the stories of their lives have moved me. So uh, Robin Kaplan was on Flight 11. She was traveling from the Boston, Massachusetts area for business. She was uh, going to go to uh, San, Fr- uh, San Francisco or California, not sure where, uh, for the opening of a new TJ Maxx store. Mm-hmm. And um, she had just recovered from Crohn's disease. She'd spent a year treating and, and trying to get it uh, in check. It's a uh, digestive disease. It's a life-threatening condition. Right, and right. Um, she uh, she left behind her parents, Francine and Edward Kaplan, and a brother, Mark, and her grandparents, David and Lorraine Kaplan, and three nieces. Um, so she was just traveling for business. There were families. It's it's sad when you read the the biographies of of the people. Um because they were just minding their own business and and unforeseen events changed everything for them. Uh, The next passenger is on, he was on United Flight uh, 175. That was also a Boeing 67 and also traveling from Boston to Los Angeles. Uh, The Boeing 767 carried 60 passengers and crew and it struck the South Tower at 9.03 a.m. And one of those passengers was William M. Weems. Um, he was always using kindness, according to what his friends and family wrote about him in his obituary. Uh, he paid attention to the small things right down to the white tennis shoes he always wore. And he left behind a wife and a daughter, Zoe, uh, he was a freelance TV producer, produced commercials, and he was headed to Los Angeles for work. Uh, and again, he left behind a wife and a seven-year-old daughter named Zoe. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And the, the next flight was American Airlines Flight 77, and it was travel. It was a Boeing 757. There were 59 passengers and crew. It was traveling from Washington D.C.'s Dulles Airport to Los Angeles. 
Diane Simmons and her husband George were on the first leg of a journey to Hawaii to spread her father's ashes alongside her mother's. Her father had died in May, and she had been caring for him for almost seven years prior to his death. And the Simmonses had been married for 19 years when they boarded Flight 77, and it was hijacked and crashed into the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. And then finally we have Flight 93, United Airlines. It was the Boeing 757, 40 passengers and crew. It was traveling to New- from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco. And um, the pilots, when the hijackers first stormed the cockpit, the pilots turned off the autopilot. And the hijackers didn't know how to turn it on. So even Flight 93 was the was the flight where things were not going to go smoothly for the hijackers, which I think is an awesome testament to the crew and passengers on that flight. Um, and then, of course, we know later the passengers decided they weren't going to allow this plane to be flown into a target because they had heard about the World Trade Center and the Pentagon when they mm-hmm. called loved ones. One of the things that is also remarkable is all, most of these people, all these passengers knew what was going on. With the exception of perhaps Flight 11 and Flight 77 because they happened so quickly as far as the um, the attacks on the Trade Center, they may not have known exactly what, but the 90, Flight 93 passengers knew there was a target. Uh, people thought it might be the White House, but two Al-Qaeda high-value targets were captured, and when they were interrogated, they said it was actually the U.S. Capitol. So the passengers decided that they were not going to allow this to happen, and they attempted, started a revolt to take over the plane, take it back. Uh, One of the passengers on that flight was Honor Elizabeth Wineo. She was about to turn 28 years old. Her mother lived in Florida. She was living in New Jersey. She was a district manager for the Discovery Store in New York and New Jersey. And she was flying to San Francisco for work. She had just returned home from a European vacation where she'd seen a friend get married in Italy. She'd also visit, visited Paris and had lunch along the Champs-Élysées uh, in Paris. She had always told her mother if, that if she ever got to see Paris, she could die happy. Uh, She was able to call her mother, and she let her mother know that they were about to take over the plane, and she had to go. Right. And, And you know, obviously, all happened there. Uh, And thank God for those. And we obviously know what happened there, and thank God for those brave Mm -hmm. souls. That did, uh, yeah. That were able to take care of that. 
One thing I want to share with you that uh, I'm not sure whether you've seen it, but it's been making the rules, uh, the rounds on Facebook. I believe it's actually from the memorial, but it's a transcript of a call from uh, Brian Sweeney, who was a passenger on United Airlines Flight 175, who was calling his Mm -hmm. wife, Julie. And he said, hey, Jules, this is Brian. Listen, I'm on an airplane that's been hijacked, and if things don't go well and they're not looking good, I want you to know that I absolutely love you, and I want you to do good. Have good times. Same with my parents. I'll see you when you get here. I want you to know that I totally love you. Bye, babe. Hope I will call you. That right there, yeah. if that doesn't bring out some emotion in you, you're a robot. Mm-hmm. That is. That is. Listening and watching the specials, I mean, they're they're showing those on History Channel tonight, and you have the, the 911 documentary by uh, or 911 documentary by uh, Gideon and Jewel Noday, who were basically working on a project where they were going to follow a probationary firefighter as he started his career with the New York Fire Department. And September 11th, they were just on their, you know, day-to-day routine call. There was a smell of gas in the street uh, right inside of the towers. And so the firefighters went to check to see what was going on. And as they're standing there on the street, they see Flight 11 hit the North Tower and then respond to the North Tower. Right. And, and um, you see, I mean, you you see each 9/11 videos like this one I saw earlier shared by somebody who worked at I believe it was a uh, Planet Fitness of uh, mm-hmm. gentlemen who actually uh, were on a stair machine and they walk, walked up 110 flights and back down for the uh, for the people that yes um, the, actually in uh, they they have the stair climbing. Uh, they do have the stair climbing events at multiple locations in, around the U.S. Uh, in New Orleans, our event was at uh, an office building in the Superdome area. I don't know what the name of it. I can't remember the name of it at the moment. But they climb those stairs three and a half times. They have firefighters who do the stair climb in full gear. Right. Because that's what the firefighters were doing. And to me, the firefighters are what get me the most because so many of them died. And and the New York City Fire Department lost their fire chief, fire marshal, superintendent, multiple battalion chiefs. That's like generals and the president being killed in a battle zone mm-hmm. because they weren't directing operations from a remote safe location. The fire chief himself was standing outside the North Tower directing evacuation when the North Tower collapsed and he was killed. Right. And, you know, 343 firefighters um, lost their lives. 
and that is then 37 Port Authority Police, 23 NYPD, uh, Fire Patrol. Um, several civilians lost their lives in the buildings helping with evacuation when they could have evacuated themselves. Wells uh, Crawler, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, he's the guy in the red bandana. Mm-hmm. Crowther. He was an equities trader in the South Tower. He was helping people evacuating. And one of the things that saved so many lives was the people in the South Tower actually began evacuating before Flight uh, 175 hit the tower. Unfortunately, a lot of people were killed when the flight hit because they were in, a, in an area where the plane hit, uh, trying to, uh, in the course of their evacuations. But he stayed in the building helping the firefighters, and he died in the collapse of the South Tower. Right, right. And, and you know, one, John, one of the, go ahead. John O'Neill, he was a former FBI special agent. He had worked on the 1993 uh, WTC bombing. He had apparently, I think his, uh, he had a vision of terrorism that wasn't shared at that time by the people in the FBI, and that led to some issues. Uh, I think he's one of the people that, that said Osama bin Laden was dangerous. And that we shouldn't, especially after the USS Cole bombing, that we shouldn't be, you know, we should be more actively trying to put a stop to what he's doing. And um, so he had taken a job as the head of uh, of security at the World Trade Center in August of 2001. And he, too, he didn't evacuate the South Tower. He was on the 49th floor assisting with the evacuation when the South Tower collapsed. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's powerful right there. And, you know, for the people that try to publicize you know, or politicize this whole situation, today's not the day. You know, no. I'm, all for, I'm all for politics. You know, we used to have a show on this on Talk Radio 49 called the American Idiots Podcast, where we would talk politics. But today isn't Mm -hmm. the day. Today is the day where, honestly, not even necessarily, you know, be proud you're an American, but today's the day you need to be just proud to be alive or happy to be alive, happy to have what you have. And, you know, grab your your close family members and tell them you love them because, you know, Situations like this happen, and you never know when it's going to happen. And you, one of the most touching things I saw a post about September 12th. I missed September 12th when you know stores were running out of of American flags, and people were kind to each other, and people helped each other, and you know people. It wasn't about our differences; it was about what we what united us. And I remember the the 
uh, I guess it was Congress, uh, House of Representatives, Democrats, Republicans, standing on the steps, holding hands, singing God Bless America. It, it's Everything is so polarized now, and it has been for a few years. Um, I remember that being full of people. They were having to turn people away from donating blood because so many people right. were being selflessly giving. Right. And that's, you know, it's it shouldn't be about what's, what's different. It should be about what unites us. But also, we should respect other people's views and allow other people to have their views, express their views, and and respect that. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And nowadays uh, it's about shouting the other side down. Absolutely. Which absolutely. is no, no counterproductive to say the least. <laughs> so, um, and then a, a few other people uh, to briefly uh, talk about um, the uh, New York City gets a lot of attention, I think, because they had so much, uh, you know, 2,600 people killed. Uh, something that I try to think about, because if I don't try to think something positive, I don't know if I can deal with it. The estimates in the World Trade Center of how many people were there at 8.45 in the morning is between 14,000 and 17,000. Mm-hmm. But uh, only 2,000 people died. Uh, a lot of those people were trapped above the impact zones in the two buildings. A lot of those people were emergency first responders assisting in evacuating the buildings when the buildings collapsed due to the damage caused by the airplanes as well as the sustained fires that burned and weakened the steel that were that was already stressed out enough from you know multiple support columns being taken out when the planes crashed into the building mm-hmm. um, and um so it's a negative, but it's, it's a positive. It could have been so much worse, and they wanted it to be so much worse. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And there, there were a, there were a, quite a few severely wounded people, severely injured people who were carried down flights of stairs by total strangers. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't every man for himself. The tenants in the building, as they were evacuating, were helping each other, even before situations became dire. Um, uh-huh. So that's another thing. And that was New Yorkers, which... Um, you know, notoriously... It's, it's you know, amazing. Every <laughs> Although some of them may have been born and raised in other parts of the country. Um, every yeah. every now and then, when I watch the nine nine eleven 
documentaries and things. I kind of wish for like a southern person's perspective because I think that, you know, the the way it would be conveyed by a southern per- person might lighten the mood a little bit. I know I know it's not necessarily an appropriate topic for lightening the mood, but that's where my brain goes when I start to get too uh emotionally Oh no, overwhelmed. That would be quite- that would be quite humorous. Uh, I feel like it goes something like, "Oh Lord, this plane was a coming," and I was just sitting there sipping <laughs> tea. And... Uh huh. Yeah, it's it's you know, I it's something I that I I thought that occurred to me when I was yeah uh, getting ready to come in here was you know if that had happened to One Shell Square in New Orleans, they probably would have needed to have subtitles on a, any documentary for about. Eighty percent of the people that would have been talking. You ain't lying. People been cut, talking Cajun, French, English, or, all well, or just no, just the New Orleans, the New Orleans accent. Um, although most of the time sounds like Brooklyn, uh, mm-hmm. is is kind of thick. And I know when when we had that show Night Watch, they always had to have subtitles. I remember for most locations, because even though, even though you could hear every word they said, you couldn't understand unless you're like I always understood because I'm from New Orleans, uh, and then mm-hmm. swamp people they have they always have to have subtitles because you Shoot. can't understand Shoot. those guys. Just... <laughs> Shoot them. <laughs> so, but uh, okay. Let's talk so, about the. Um, Three areas that were affected here, you know, New York obviously the most infamous with the uh, Twin Towers, but the Pentagon also took a strike that day, as well as, you know, obviously probably the second most famous being the field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where uh, yeah. Flight 93 finally did come to its final resting place. Yes. Uh, in the Pentagon, uh, the loss of life there uh was not as great. Um, I think, as I recall from the documentaries, that was an area that had been under renovation, and so they were still moving people back in to that western section. Um, but uh, the one of the people killed in that uh, in the Pentagon was Lieutenant Colonel. Stephen Neal Highland Jr. He was an Army Lieutenant Colonel, and uh, his family said that 20 years ago he wanted his epitaph to read "Born with the gift of laughter and a sense that the world was mad." And his friends and family said that they would always remember him when they thought about him laughing. Right. I mean, so and, many souls lost that. Day. Yeah, and then the um, there was a, a a lieutenant general, I think it was, uh, who was the highest ranking officer killed since uh, nineteen forty five, and. 
I don't have his I printed his thing out and I don't have it now. Um but yeah, he was he was in his office at a uh, Lieutenant General Timothy L. Maud. Uh he was in his office when flight seventy seven uh crashed into the Pentagon and he had just moved been moved back into that area a few days before this happened. He was the highest ranking officer killed uh, since 1945. And he'd served in Vietnam, won a Bronze Star. He was uh, the Jeopardy, Deputy Chief of Staff for Personnel. Right. So, uh, and he had ruptured his spleen in November of 2000. And instead of staying at home and resting and forgetting about his duty in the Army, he established Internet and phone lines and 48 hours after surgery was receiving updates and briefing from the bedroom of his home in Fort Myers, Virginia. So this was a man who did not shirk his duty under any circumstances. Absolutely. It's not the, you know, as much as people say they're robots and things, I feel like that's almost a term of endearment, even though it's a, you know, people, some people use that as a term of, you know, a pejorative. A, a, a laughing, yeah, a negative term or negative connotation, you know, it's real, you know, it, mm-hmm. it is, but it's something that you, learn to love. You do it because you love your country, not because you're forced to. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it is real. It is. And it's commendable. Uh and something else I wanna I wanna talk about. Um you know, as far as Shanksville without without the action of the passengers and even the initial action of the pilots in, in deactivating the automatic pilot, um, that plane was probably headed for the U.S. Capitol building. Mm-hmm. And the loss of life then would have been greater. Absolutely. And the effect on the U.S. government uh, would have been dating. Um the White House, it, it it would have been ironic because President Bush wasn't at the White House at the time. Right. And I'm sure they knew that. And I'm sure why, that's probably why that wasn't where they were going. Correct. Correct. So, um, but uh, one of the other things on uh, on the documentaries for a lot of years, and I remember even when this happened watching the news coverage um, there was a lot of anger about showing people who jumped and there were a lot of families who when people thought they identified one of their loved ones as a person who had jumped um, that there was that couldn't be him no and they were upset that, you know, this was being done. But 
I think for anyone who jumped, they were faced with an impossible choice. It was a Sophie's choice, so to speak. You either stay in the building, you can't get out, the stairs are blocked, you're above the impact, there's no stairs, there's no elevator, and if there are no stairs to get down, there's no stairs for anyone to come up and rescue you. And, you know, I think those who chose to jump instead of burning to death, maybe that was one way of taking control of what happened to them. Absolutely, and that's one thing I got to say. You know, I'm not, I'm not a proponent of suicide by any stretch of the imagination, but in this case, those people ought to be commended I, because yeah, you know, I, I, they, I don't see it. Do what now? I don't, I don't see that even as, as suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an impossible choice to get away from the heat and the flames. There was nowhere else to go. Your building, you were in the sky. And like I said, if you couldn't get down, nobody could come up to rescue you. Uh, And something that uh, Father Michael Judge, who was actually the first casualty uh, fatality, who was identified and brought out of uh, the World Trade Center, he was filmed uh, during the 9-11 documentary by the No Days. And he was standing at one of the windows, and his lips were moving. And people who knew him said he wasn't talking to himself. He was absolving every one of those people as they fell. Right. And um, one of his, the uh, the father, Friar, because he was a Franciscan, uh, who did his eulogy, said that death, he was killed when the South Tower collapsed by debris. They were sheltering in the North Tower, and, and several people had been injured by debris. And he was actually ministering to an injured firefighter when he was struck by debris and killed. And his friend said that's actually the way he would want it because we're not going to find these people for a long time. But he's on the other side and he's waiting for them to shepherd them. Because he can't do it in life. He couldn't have done it in life. So he's going to do it in death. And he was, if you ever read about him, he was an amazing man. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just a terrible day all the way around. You know, the Pentagon, Mm -hmm. Shanksville, New York. An absolutely awe-inspiring day that, you know, once again, we will remember for those that, you know, were alive and you know, fully cognitive, we'll remember for the rest of our lives. You know, we've had several instances here recently where, you know, situations where people will probably remember where they were for the rest of their lives. I still remember watching Katrina in 2005 in uh, science class. I remember that. There's a lot of things. Yeah. 
even Katrina pales in comparison. You know, maybe not to somebody from New Orleans, but it's still in my lifetime pales in comparison to September 11th. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, that is, I mean, we think about them today, but think about them every day. We can't forget what happened. Uh, and we have to remember them so that their, their lives and their sacrifices live on. Those, those firefighters sacrificed their lives trying to save as many people as they could. And they really did. Um, they did save probably around twelve thousand people, mm-hmm. because they helped twelve thousand people get out of the building. And they, you know, police officers helped twelve thousand people get away from the World Trade Center complex, so that when the towers eventually came down, there weren't a lot more people in, you know, the danger zone. Because whenever you watch the 102 minutes on History Channel, I mean, you see police officers and just on people, keep moving, keep going, keep going, don't stop, keep going, don't stop, keep getting away. And um, like I said, there are a lot of people who would not be here. But for the response of the New York Fire Department, in not only Manhattan firefighters, but man, firefighters from every borough. 75 firehouses lost at least one person, and some firehouses lost everyone. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, you mentioned the police uh, that were out there telling people, you know, get away. A lot of the video you see of them, they're in, themselves covered in, covered in soot and, mm-hmm. you know, to put, yeah. and like that, you know. And, they weren't doing this because they wanted to be, you know, rude or evil or what have you. They were doing this because right. they wanted they to. Right, they just had to do, right. They had to keep, they had to keep people moving. Um, and there was a, another uh, Port Authority police officer who helped several people out of the building, with some with minor injuries, a couple with pretty major injuries. And every time he got one person back out, he went back in. And he was killed when one of the towers collapsed. Um, and then there was a Port Authority canine dog, uh, part of the explosive, de- explosive detection team. When the first plane hit, her partner, uh, his partner... Uh, Sergeant David Lim needed to go check to see what had happened. So he took Sirius, the canine, to the Port Authority office and put him in his kennel, which is protocol, and then went to see what had happened. The first plane had hit the North Tower. They, he was probably, you know, enveloped by the chaos and, and trying to evacuate as many people as they could. So he never got back to the South Tower office. Uh, he ended up being injured and was actually taken to hospital from the World Trade Center site. Sirius was in his kennel and was killed when the South Tower collapsed. Uh, and Sergeant Lim took some heat on an Internet page from after he told the story. But 
keeping the the canine, all those people, the noise, the the smells, it would have been too much for the dog. Mm-hmm. He likely would have, you know, he, he and and Sergeant Lim would have had to worry more about the dog than he could about helping people evacuate. The dog, you know, Sirius might have broken away and run away. Sirius might have become very afraid and aggressive to him or to somebody else. So, you know, the protocol was to leave Sirius in the office while Lim, Sergeant Lim, checked on everything. And the right. chaos of that day, and not not knowing that the buildings would collapse, not knowing that a second plane would hit, um, was, you know, he was following protocol. He was doing the right thing at that time for the dog. He just did not know what would have happened. Um, if he'd had any idea what would have happened, he may have taken him elsewhere. Right. Prior Absolutely. to doing, but he was also doing his job as a police officer. So, Absolutely. Um, whoever, whoever and, can hold him for that is a very, very negative, terrible person and should reevaluate correct. their life. Correct. But, uh, you know, I think he was doing what what he was supposed to do under the circumstances at that time and that he had he gotten a chance I'm sure he would have immediately gone when the first plane the second plane hit if he had had the chance he would have gone and gotten him out of the south tower I have no doubt about that but I don't think he ever got a chance and so you know he's not to blame for what happened. Right. Absolutely so. not. You know, the sad fact is he probably, unfortunately, does beat himself up a little bit over it. And he oh, didn't he, do that. He does. He, he I'm sure, does. And uh, his response on one of the uh, posts criticizing him made me cry. Because he probably is of all people, you don't need to tell him that. He probably, you know, thinks of it every day. But he would have had to have known how things were going to play out. And that's something no one knew. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And before we move on to uh, Wanda Jean Allen, um, I think I want to close with a couple of, I guess we'll call them inspirational quotes. Uh-huh. Uh, the first one is from Winston Churchill, and it says, All the great things are simple, and many can be expressed in a single word. Freedom, justice, honor, duty, mercy, hope. Of course, Mr. Churchill was writing during World War II. And then the second is from uh, battalion, former battalion chief, retired now, uh, Joseph Pfeiffer. Uh, chief Pfeiffer lost his only brother, Kevin, in the collapse of the World Trade Center. He was, uh, Kevin was a 
lieutenant uh, who was working in the North Tower evacuating people when it collapsed. Um, Joseph Pfeiffer said, 9-11 is made up of little stories of people doing small things or making small decisions, which turned out to be the difference between life and death. There's incredible stories of people's actions that day that saved so many others. And that's what I try to remember, is the number of people that were saved by the firefighters, by the police officers, by the passengers on United 93 who did what little they could. And you know, some gave, some gave all, and that that is what they did in the end. They gave all. You know, they paid the, as they call it in the military, they paid the ultimate sacrifice mm-hmm. uh, for freedom. <clears throat> you know, uh, yeah. definitely. We're going to go ahead and take our commercial break a little bit early. I think this is a fitting place to go ahead and take our quick commercial break. So we're yes. going to be right back. Thank you. When we, when we come back, we're going to uh, start off with our topic for the evening. Uh, Miss Wanda Jean Allen, a woman who was put to death in 2002 by the state of Oklahoma for the murder of Gloria Jean Leathers. So we will be right back with more Clear and Convincing after this. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at sub Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at sub Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. sub Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Been a wrong time. Out of 
my regular intro. I made it a longer oh. intro tonight. Okay. Okay. I just okay. did I did Wanda first and then September eleventh because we were going to move into September eleventh first. Okay. Well let's talk about Wanda Jean Allen. I wanna go ahead and take a moment before we get started to let everybody know, you know, I discovered this case uh, via a YouTube documentary, and Lisa, I believe you were able to view it. Uh, I, yeah. I, it was actually not a YouTube documentary. I want to say it was an HBO documentary that was made at the time of her execution. And uh, I definitely have some feelings on this that I'm interested in getting your take on as far as, uh, you know, the ability for the state of Oklahoma to, or any state to be able to, execute a seemingly mentally handicapped individual. Uh, maybe those questions will be answered throughout uh, us talking tonight uh, beforehand, but definitely one of the more controversial uh, points of this whole case is centering around the fact that Wanda Jean had at one point, I believe it was after her first conviction of murder for, uh, well, not murder, but I believe it ended up being like manslaughter, if I'm correct. Uh, and feel free if I'm wrong. But uh, they had tested her and found out that she uh, had, I believe it was a IQ score of 59. So, you know, obviously. You're incorrect. Low. I'm. I'm I, I I'm sorry to inform you of that, but you are incorrect. She was tested at age fifteen. Okay. Um, okay. She had been put into a juvenile institution because she attacked her foster mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, you know Wanda Jean grew up in abject poverty, uh, substance abuse, alcohol abuse. With her mother, her father left the family. Uh, they were in a not particularly good area. I think it was of Oklahoma City. Um, mm-hmm. But she was a she was a wild and out of control child. Right. At the age of either twelve or six, depending on who's telling recounting the story, she was struck by a truck and did sustain. A pretty serious head injury. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had been tested at age 15 in 1975. So she was actually, she was born in 58. In 1975, she was probably 17. 
16. Right. Right. Um, now, Lisa, I'm going to read And she, it was an IQ of 69. Right. What we right, have to right. also remember, though, is that apparently she dropped out of school. Yes, at 17. So, or at 15. But so. believe, now the article I'm looking at says 17, but uh, one thing I do want to mention about the age of 15, it says at uh, 14 or 15, this was something I didn't know, she was actually stabbed in the left temple, and it was found that that was what uh, supposedly impaired her abilities. And, you know, oh, it was at that point. That yeah, and that that was that was also mentioned. What the reason I say her brother Bill claimed uh-huh. she was six years old when she was hit by the truck. Most okay. of the sources said twelve, and then at right. fourteen she was stabbed in the temple. But Wanda was also known to have a violent. When she did not get her way, she got violent. Mhm. Uh-huh. And, again, she was in an institution because she had attacked her foster mother. Now, is it possible that this, you know, they said they found particularly significant was the left left hemisphere of her brain was dysfunctional. It had impaired her ability to comprehend, uh, logically express herself, and analyze cause and effect. You know, hey, if I kill this person, for example, in her example – you know, this is what's going to happen. Or if I stab this person or shoot this person, this is Correct. what's going to happen to me. Uh, do you believe that that played a part in this? No, and the reason I don't believe that that played a part in this is because after the shooting of Gloria Leathers mm-hmm. and in 1981, after she shot and killed Deborah Pettit, Detra, I keep wanting to call her Deborah, I'm sorry, Detra. Okay. Or Dedra Pettis, Dead. she claimed both times self-defense. Mm-hmm. She claimed right. that she was shooting at Dedra Pettis' boyfriend, who was shooting at her. Okay. Even though the evidence with Dedra Pettis was that Dedra Pettis had been pistol whipped prior to being shot at close range in the abdomen. Okay. Mm-hmm. After Shame she shot and killed uh, Gloria Jean Leathers, she gave the gun to a friend and then went to Duncan, Oklahoma, which was like 50 miles away. Mm-hmm. So she fled. Okay. The way the and those are those are. I believe you've seen the documentary, correct? Yes, correct. Way the I documentary or the way I comprehended it. The murder of Gloria happens in the parking lot of the police station, and the way it's portrayed, the mother saw it, and then uh, Wanda Jean calmly walked into the police station and basically into a room. No, the mother mother saw it, and the mother saw Wanda Jean shoot her daughter in the abdomen. And then mm-hmm. calmly walk to her car, get in, and drive away. Okay. Wanda Jean did not walk into the police station. The The documentary 
of course, you know how I am about these documentaries that they tell the, the one side of the story, they give a little bit of lip service to the prosecution side, but they don't really tell. They made it look like she walked in the police station and turned herself in because she thought it was self-defense. But that's not what really happened. What happened was she went to Duncan, Oklahoma, and was arrested five days later, just hours before Gloria Jean Leathers died of her abdominal gunshot wound. And let's talk about the uh, the actual death of Gloria Jean on this situation. So Gloria Jean and Wanda Jean, they met in uh, prison when she when Wanda was in prison for the murder of uh, Deidre Pettis. Or Deidre, I apologize right. if I uh, am mispronouncing her name. But uh, they had a very tumultuous relationship, uh, according to, and I don't remember what her official title was. I think she may have been the prosecutor. Um, she said that, you know, Wanda Jean was very dominant. Uh, she would sign her name as, more manly, Jean, G-E-N-E, when she wanted Correct. to portray them in the relationship, things like uh, she mentioned. But uh, I believe yeah. that they that this all started in a fight. I bel- I want to say in the apartment. I could be wrong. Uh, there was a hammer involved, and Wanda Jean, from what the documentary stated, was on her way to the police station to file charges, so, I believe is what they said. And uh, then, but I guess... As, as with many documentaries... That's only half of the story. What happened was that Wanda Jean and Gloria Jean were at a grocery store. Gloria Jean had a welfare check. Wanda Jean felt that that welfare check belonged to her. Okay. And so they were engaged in a dispute in the grocery store. Police were called. Mm-hmm. Gloria Jean decided, um, I've had it, I'm not dealing with this anymore, and she decided she was going to move out. Police right. escorted her back to the home that they shared, and she began packing and, and gathering her belongings. A uh-huh. dispute arose over the belongings. What belonged to Wanda, what belonged to Gloria. So Gloria decided that she and her mother were going to go to the police station and file a report. Right. To get whatever belongings Wanda would not let her have that belonged to her. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wanda Jean claims that there was an attack with a, with a hand rake. However, while the officers were at the house, an officer mm-hmm. saw the hand rake and picked it up and put it into a clothes basket underneath some clothes. Mm-hmm. And when the officers were at the house, none of them saw Gloria grab a hand rake and attack Wanda with it. Okay. There was also no evidence in Wanda's car of any blood from this alleged injury from the hand rake, nor was there any evidence in the house of blood from an alleged injury with a hand rake after Gloria's mm-hmm. shooting. So, mm-hmm. uh, 
Gloria and her mother left to go to the police station to file a report, and Wanda Jean followed them. Okay. She claimed that she went in the house to tend to her wound, but she was never less than two car lengths behind them, according to her own testimony. So she's following them to the police station. She does not want Gloria to leave. She had tried at the house to convince Gloria not to leave, and Gloria wasn't wasn't having it. Right. And so they get to the police station. Wanda gets out of the car, again tries to convince Gloria not to leave. Gloria says, no, I'm leaving, I'm done. And that's when Wanda Jean walks back to her car, gets the pistol, walks up, and shoots Gloria Jean at close range. Right. When, after Gloria Jean was shot in the, part in the not the parking lot, I think it was like in a driveway in front of the police station, the officer who put the hand rake in the clothing basket found the hand rake in the floor of the car. Uh-huh. It had fallen out of the clothing basket. The clothing basket was knocked over, but the hand uh-huh. rake was still in the car. It was never in Gloria's hand. And it was never used to attack or threaten Wanda Jean. Again, that's one of the reasons that I don't think her impairment was as severe as they attempted to portray it. Because, again, Detra Pettis and Gloria, she said it was self-defense. And she testified at her trial in the murder of Gloria Jean she testified at trial to self-defense. Right, right. And the attack with the hand rake and all that. It's and that is minute. that is an an example of someone who's, you know, not impaired, thinking of a way to try to get out of the situation that their violent temper have put them in. And I want to bring up two cards that were cited in that movie, in that documentary, the first uh-huh. one about you're in my prayers and on the inside and most of my confessions. And it yes, says, it, yes. you know, I, I I will hunt down someone I love and kill them. Yeah. And then the other yeah. one, patience my ass, I want to kill something and but turns it over. And, you know, if you try to leave me, you're going to find out. That speaks to me as a very mentally disturbed person. And... I believe, and once again, I'm just playing devil's advocate in this situation. Right. Completely, you know, open to anything, but that speaks to me as somebody who does. They don't know what they're saying per se, or could not know what they're saying per se, in that, you know, hey, I'm going to do this. I got it off of it once. You know, I believe that. I believe her getting off more. But again, that is a. That mindset is a calculating one, not that not not of a mentally impaired person who is just, you know, reacting without thought. Uh-huh. Calculating. Okay. I got self defense I got a manslaughter four years in jail once. I'll do it again. That's what right. I told you about George right. Zimmerman. I don't think his second jury is gonna believe self defense. Mhm. Right. Um, Absolutely not. And, you know, that's a a domineering person, but a domineering, possessive person 
is not necessarily mentally ill, and not all mental illness is a mitigator. In fact, that kind of mental mental illness actually would make Wanda Jean more dangerous and a continuing Whoa. threat because when Wanda Jean is in love with someone and they are no longer in love with her, uh-huh. she wants to kill them. And one of the things that uh, strike me is, um, and you just mentioned it, oh, uh, when we get into the trial, you'll understand a little bit more, ladies and gentlemen out there, but uh, David Preston, our 1991 defense lawyer, stated that, uh, you know, obviously she had an IQ of 69, it was just within the upper limits of classification of mental retardation. So, I mean, she, when I say mentally well, uh, disabled, again, she wasn't like, completely helpless either. So I don't well, want people to get that idea. But again, David, David Preston was the investigator. Stephen Preston, mm-hmm. his brother, was the attorney. Okay. David was the investigator. Here at David Dyer, was not the attorney. Okay. The article the article is wrong because the execution of Wanda Jean uh identifies him as a private investigator and it identified okay. Stephen as the attorney. That's what I'm basing it on. Okay. okay. <laughs> but again oh, no, the I'm IQ of sixty nine was at age fifteen. Um in nineteen ninety I believe it was nineteen ninety five and uh Ms. Howard, the the prosecutor who spoke at the clemency hearing, mentioned this. In 1995, she had an IQ test administered, and she tested out at an 80, which Mm -hmm. is outside the limit. I mean, average IQ is 100. Well, and this may be very biased towards Wanda Jean, this article here that I'm looking at, because it mentions that, 1995, and it says, Psychologists conducted a comprehensive evaluation of Allen in 1995 and found clear and convincing evidence of cognitive and sensory motor defects, deficits, excuse me, and brain dysfunction possibly linked to an adolescent head injury. Correct. And they were they were actually using that not only to try to uh say that she was mentally uh, unfit and therefore could not be executed. But they were also saying that that made her unfit to have even stood trial in the first place. Now, see, they made it sound like that wasn't, you know, even thought of. They basically, the way, and maybe it's just when they brought in the documentary but they basically said that, you know, the clemency hearing was the first time they brought this up, is the way it seemed to me. No, they raised that in, I believe, her state and federal post-conviction. Mm-hmm. That okay. The, basically, they, they raised it more as an ineffective assistance that her attorney at trial, I believe his name was Campbell, uh, Carpenter, mm-hmm. rather, did not um, okay. uh, did not gather all this information that he could have gotten uh, 
to put on a mitigation case, mitigating her culpability or mitigating her sentence. However, the reason that the appellate courts did not uh, find it to be uh, sufficient to grant a new trial is because Mm -hmm. the head injury, the IQ testing at 15 or, or 17 or however old she was, and the um, psychological testing that was recommended at 15 or psychological treatment that was recommended at 15. All of those things were things that Wanda Allen and her mother both knew about but didn't tell Camp Carpenter. Okay. And in the records that were submitted in the state post-conviction claim, the okay. court said a lot of those records would have done more harm than good because it showed her tendency for violence. Right. And those things could have done more harm than good because it shows that she's a violent person. She gets angry. She lashes out. She's a continuing threat. Well, and that's something that I also want to bring up is, and I'm going to once again you know, look at the uh, documentary, when they were prepping her for the clemency hearing, she appeared rather, she appeared rather hesitant to use that defense. And I don't know if you picked up on that, but she definitely, she didn't want to say that she was fully, remember the lawyers were sitting there talking to her and they said, we're not saying you're slow, we're just saying that this impaired you or something like that along those lines. And she seemed like she was very hesitant to admit that she was impaired. And she even, in her original statement before her corrected, she almost blamed Gloria Jean, too. Well, yeah, I mean, she did. And she, before they corrected her, and uh, she was trying to give that story, and she was saying she was going to the police station to file a complaint, even though Mm -hmm. she wasn't going to the police station to file a complaint. She was going to the police station because she was following Gloria Leathers, wherever Gloria Leathers went, because she loved her and she was leaving, and so Wanda was going to kill her. Okay. Well, I mean, I, right. you know, I, based on everything I've read about the about what happened, and that's those facts are also one of the reasons that the Oklahoma uh, Court of Appeal did not find her claims of self defense to be uh, viable. Right. And one of the one of the complaints about the uh, about Mr. Carpenter was he had requested funds for an investigator, but the court didn't grant the funds. Mm-hmm. And when they looked at what he was asking for, he was asking for an investigator to develop the self defense case, mm-hmm. not to develop okay. a case a mitigation case. So, um, but no, that's, I mean, that, that, those two cars are the reason that I think when Wanda got into the car to follow Gloria Jean, she intended to kill her. Because remember, we had spoken about premeditation, although that wasn't, that wasn't an issue in any of the, in the appeals. Um, Right. And likely Ms. Howard's discussion of it in the documentary was, probably because the filmmaker 
said, well, I don't understand how this would be first-degree murder because it was a spur-of-the-moment heat of passion thing. Right. Or self-defense. And that's I think that's why Miss Howard is on camera explaining premeditation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, she got in the car and she drove away. She gave the gun to a friend. And then she left and went to Duncan, Oklahoma. That's flight. And, that's and flight crazy. is an element of consciousness of guilt. Flight True. means you know you did something wrong. And you know that there are going to be consequences for it. And you flee to avoid those consequences for as long as you can. Now, is that where she was apprehended? Correct. How did apprehension go down? You know, I don't, I did not find, unfortunately, this is the case, the, uh, because the execution was in 2001, not 2002. Huh. Okay. Um, the, the dockets at the federal court, uh, district court, as well as appellate court, the documents aren't available. Oh, okay. And yeah. more okay. likely than not, the, the, uh, the appellant briefs or the briefs on behalf of Wanda Jean probably would have had more information about her apprehension. The state briefs definitely would have had more information about her apprehension, but unfortunately those were not available. Yeah, we're talking. About and so yeah. I, I can only go, I can only go with what the, what the appellate courts, uh, recounted in their opinions and generally um, they mentioned that she fled and that she was arrested a few days later. Um, I found mm-hmm. reference to Duncan, Oklahoma on uh, an article from right around the time she was convicted. So okay. Duncan may not even be a hundred percent correct. Okay. Well, we but, know she was arrested whether it be in Duncan or not. Correct. What is the prosecution, you know, uh, this is really their second shot at, you know, nailing Wanda Jean as far as this goes, because, you know, she got off the first time and ended up with the uh, manslaughter conviction. This is really their second shot at her. What is their case in this? What does their case look like, I should say? Well, they have a direct witness. In Gloria's mother. Mm-hmm. They have several police officers who negated the self-defense claim. Okay. Uh, they have the police officers who were direct witnesses to what transpired at the house while Gloria was moving her things out and ending the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, the detrapetus, I think, even though the forensic evidence did refute the self-defense claim, mm-hmm. um, I think that they perhaps believed that in her mind, whatever was going on, whatever happened, was uh, that there was some threat to her. And I don't know that mm-hmm. because that's a boyfriend of Dedra Pedras was was present at the time, but. Again, Detra Pet Pettis, excuse me, Detra Pettis 
Gore, uh, Wanda Jean found her at a hotel. Mm-hmm. And engaged in a dispute with her and then shot her at close range and pistol-whipped her. Right. So, again, this was not a... Uh, you know, this was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. She actually went looking for Detra and found her and shot her and right. killed her. And shot at point-blank range. Correct. Correct. And like I said, pistol-whipped her before she shot her because she had wounds. Right. She had injuries to her head that were consistent with having been pistol-whipped. Um, so... Again, I don't, and I don't know the the facts. I don't know whether she was arrested on the scene or arrested soon after Detra's murder. Um, but for whatever reason, yeah, the prosecution at that time thought manslaughter. Right. And in right. this, like I said, in this case, they had a little bit more evidence about what happened, and all of that refuted the the self defense claims. Okay. So the defense case is just pure self-defense? Uh, Correct. I feared for my life and, you know, Correct. all that? Okay. Correct. That, now, that, that Lori was attacking her with the hand rake and okay. had attacked her at the house with the hand rake and that she was going to the police station to file a report. Now, this is, this is kind of uh, going to sound like I'm against Wanda Jean in this case, but, you know... A hand rake equals a gun? That kind of... I know you can't see my face right now, but that doesn't make much sense to me. Well, no. um, I I don't really... I don't find an attack with a hand rake to be uh, sufficient to raise reasonable fear. Although, I don't know. If you get the hand rake... if, If the hand rake gets you in the neck... And severs your jugular or gets your carotid artery. Yeah, you will. You'll bleed out before anybody can do anything. You'll probably bleed out before you hit the ground. But other than that, let's but, be honest here. If you're just swinging wild, it's probably going to hurt like a thumb, bitch. But that's about mm-hmm. it. All right. And one of the other reasons the self-defense case didn't work is because Wanda Jean claimed the attack with the hand rake initially happened at the house. Mm-hmm. But then Gloria left and Wanda pursued. And in right. pursuing Gloria to the police station, Wanda lost... Um, Wanda became the aggressor. Right. It became a completely separate incident and bingo, Correct. And again, the the fact that you know the police officer had hidden the hand rake, so not only did he refute an initial attack at the house, the hand rake was where he put it in the car, and not in Gloria's hand or on the ground outside the car. Mm-hmm. Meaning there was no hand rake. Right. It's the first or the second time there was no attack with a hand rake. Okay. And okay. again, I I believe I believe Wanda's testimony was that she was further away when she shot Gloria Jean, but the uh, wound to Gloria Jean was close contact. Right. Right. 
right. I believe, honestly, I believe uh, the mom even said something about she yelled at Wanda Jean to get out of there or something. And yeah. all of a sudden she heard a pop, and Gloria Jean said, Mama, I've been shot. And she said, Girl, quit playing. Initially, yeah. And it, initially she didn't believe her, and then she saw the blood and she saw uh, the exit wound because uh, it was a thirty eight caliber uh, revolver. And um, so, yeah, so the defense case was purely self-defense. Wanda Jean was normal. And one of the things that hurt Wanda Jean, whatever her educational history may or may not be, at Mm -hmm. trial in the penalty phase, she testified that she graduated from high school and obtained a nursing, uh, some form of nursing certificate. I remember they had said that, yes. And actually, I Correct. believe, and they call him the gentleman with the long hair because I'm terrible with names, but the Preston. lawyer that has the long hair. Stephen Preston. He, uh, he had said that, you know, that wasn't true. Do you know anything about that? I think he, he had claimed that, that wasn't that was, true. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is that while they claimed that that wasn't true and they claimed in the documentary that – Nobody had any record of her. Um, they never really raised it in any of their in any of their claims. Okay. Okay. So I don't know. Um, like I said, I I don't know. But the the thing with me is, if you have a problem with that you look at your client, you don't blame the prosecutor. You don't say it's unreasonable for the prosecutor to believe that testimony at trial. Just because because a prosecutor doesn't believe self-defense doesn't mean that they can't believe that this, this, you know, person on trial for their life would, under oath, tell the truth about their educational background. And you got to remember, too, Wanda lived independently. She handled her own affairs. She Mm -hmm. did, you know, there's no evidence that she had anybody assisting her with managing her money, you know, doing her job or anything along those lines. So, you know, again, her functional capacity. Uh, that they claim is not mm-hmm. supported by the of Wanda Jean prior to the murder. You know, okay. one of the things that one of the one of the it kind of uh, I don't want to call it a joke, but one of the things that we used to talk about among the people who believed Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly were were guilty was how every time a new attorney comes in or a new supporter comes around, Jesse Miss Kelly gets dumber and dumber. His IQ drops from 72 to 50. Right. And, you know, he he goes from the mentality of a 12-year-old to the mentality of a 3-year-old or a 5-year-old <clears throat> to try and make him appear uh less functional than he was in reality. 
and that's and that yeah. happens in a lot of a lot of murder and especially a lot of death penalty cases. So we know Lisa that obviously she was convicted. Uh, Correct. Penalty phase though. Was it always 100% like from the onset the state made no bones about it, we're going for the death penalty in this case? Yes, and that's one of the other issues with Mr. Carpenter. Um, Mr. Carpenter was retained by her family to represent her. The family agreed to pay him either $2,500 or $5,000. Again, the source of the information varies. Um, okay. Some sources had twenty five hundred, and some sources had five thousand. He mm-hmm. thought that the case would plead out when he found out that it was going to be that Oklahoma was going to be seeking the death penalty. He did seek to be relieved, mm-hmm. but the judge wouldn't allow it. And apparently, Oklahoma requires attorneys to do pro bono work. And in the judge's rationale this would be his pro bono work for the year. This was in 1989. Standards as to death penalty defense were not what they are today or even what they were in 1992 or 1993. Mm -hmm. But so so that is more or less, he was not really qualified. Um, he He was not really qualified but he did, you know, he did put on a self-defense case. He did put on a case in mitigation with her family and portraying her as normal and not the monster that the prosecution painted her to be. Uh, but unfortunately, I think those cards and the threats beforehand to Gloria Leathers, as well as the Dedra Pettis, Case and the two cases were very similar. Petra right. Pettis was both, ending a relationship. Both. Gloria was ending a relationship. Wanda right. Jean both. hunted uh, Detra down, hunted Gloria down. Wanda Jean shot Detra at close range in the abdomen. Uh-huh. Shot Gloria Jean at close range in the abdomen. When right. the women would not would not continue the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the controversy about the homosexuality being used against her in the Bible Belt, Oklahoma, and you know the 1989, there were still men and women who lived with other men and women as quote friends or quote roommates when they in reality had a romantic relationship going on. Those were the right. cons in 1989. It's good that it's changed. It's good that people can be themselves and not have to hide any aspect of their lives. But just because that's not how things were in 1989 uh, does not necessarily mean even that the jury had any bias against Wanda because she was homosexual. Okay. Had she been a man yeah. and this had been a heterosexual relationship, it would have been the same. The outcome would have been the same. Right. Right. 
you know. And I think the other thing is the 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 evidence about Wanda being the man in the relationship and, and her aggressive nature and uh, Gloria's passive nature, those were important to under, for the jurors to understand the dynamics of their relationship and to understand why things went the way that they did. And it wasn't done right. by the prosecution to smear her because she was homosexual or anything like that. It was done so the jurors could understand because in any murder involving any relationship between two people, you have to understand those dynamics. Mm-hmm. You cannot leave part of that out because it might, you know, it, it isn't socially acceptable at the time. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. So, uh, obviously, the sentence is handed down. She's sentenced to death. Um, Correct. Injection. Um, what happens on the direct appeal? Because this is where I know you said you started getting a lot more information is the appeals. Correct. Uh, in the direct appeal, they raised several issues. Um, they did not raise issues regarding her... Uh, they did raise the the IQ and I think the neurological, but more in an ineffective assistance that the uh, uh, Mr. Carpenter did not discover them. But again, those were things that Wanda Jean knew and could have told him and should have told oh. him. Uh, but they raised standard issues regarding um, failure to uh, record some of the pretrial hearings and some instances during voir dire and trial, but the appellate court found that those uh, what the appellate court needed to review the trial and the sentence and the conviction, those things were recorded and there were transcripts, and so there wasn't any uh, prejudice in not having transcripts of, of these isolated uh, incidents. And having transcripts would not have changed the outcome of the trial or appeal. And okay. uh, the trial court, uh, they claim the trial court erred in denying funding for a private investigator, but again, the funding for the private investigator was trying to develop the uh, not the mitigation case, but the self-defense case. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, that uh, they raised issues about exclusion of jurors, uh, but again, the court found that the, the trial court didn't commit an error, and you know, even if it did, there was no prejudice. But I, I don't think he found, they found any errors as far as the trial court and the jurors. Um, and then the trial court had excluded testimony from Gloria's mother regarding alleged murder committed by Gloria in Tulsa. But when Wanda Jean testified, she mentioned that. So that information was already before the jury. They didn't need to get it before them with Wanda Jean, with Gloria Jean's mother. 
And um, then they complained about jury instructions that the court should have instructed on second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter, which, again, the Court of Appeal found that the evidence did not support instructions on either of those issues. And um, right. then they they allege prosecutorial misconduct uh, in several aspects, but in most of those aspects, the, the appellate court found that those were actually, actually evidentiary issues that should have been objected to, and then the judge should have determined whether they were uh, to be properly admitted or not, and that they weren't that that it wasn't prosecutorial misconduct. It was mm-hmm. you should have raised an objection, and the judge should have decided whether it was proper or improper. Right. Makes sense. And uh, then, let's see, there was uh, most of the... They, she challenged the constitutionality of continuing threat, and um, the court had given an improper instruction that misstated the law. But again, the the... The continuing threat aggravator, the court had ruled on that issue multiple times, and they basically said, we've been here, we've done that, we don't find error. You know, right. it's not unconstitutional, we're moving on. And um, they, when they reviewed the entire instruction given by the court, it did not misstate the law. Right, right. And so that was... Um, she had quite a so, few so, uh, allegations of error, and some of them were, you know, built on each other. <clears throat> right. But it's basically so, a complete failure, though. She got nothing, you know, accomplished her, right. in any of her, her conviction and sentence were, were affirmed. However, uh, you know, when you read, if you read the opinion, you see, because that's the thing that I like about the appellate opinions, they give you the defense side. They give you the prosecution side. They give you the evidence presented by both sides, and then they analyze the issue and apply that evidence to the issue and tell you why they're ruling in the way that they are. Right. And so, um, yeah, she her her conviction was affirmed, but they they analyzed and explained why uh, the you know why the instruction that she claimed misstated the law was not a misstatement of the law was actually correct statement of the law. Right. She fails there. We go to the state post conviction, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. So and that was actually, raised- I think. I think that that is where the the mental uh, the ineffective account assistance of counsel for failure to discover the mental evidence that could have been uh, could have been uh, used to support mitigation. That's when Presson and Robert Jackson took over. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But again, you know the the Oklahoma State Appellate Court found that the attorney did not know about this because Wanda Jean didn't tell him. 
and she mm-hmm. had an obligation to tell him. He doesn't have to go, you know, on a wild goose chase or looking for a needle in a haystack to find something that's going to help his client. His client should have helped herself by saying, well, right. you know, when I was when I was 15, I had an IQ test, and they said my IQ was 69. Mm-hmm. And a doctor at a, ho- a state hospital told me that I needed psychological counseling because I was. Right. And she didn't tell him that. And, yes, you know, Preston, they got all these records and, and found all these problems, but a lot of the records would have done more harm than good mm-hmm. because a lot of the records displayed a violent background, uh, Wanda's violence toward other people. And that may be a result of the head injury because mm-hmm. the, the temporal lobe, it does you know kind of act as a regulator on your behavior. Um, but, you know, when you, especially with Wanda Jean, gotten so angry that you shot and killed someone you claim to love, why wouldn't she have sought help while she was in prison? Why would she continue the cycle with her relationship with Gloria? Right. Right, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that that people, and, and especially it seems defense attorneys, don't recognize. If the defendant does not want to change or does not think there's anything wrong with him, then no amount of counseling is going to do a damn bit of good because mm-hmm. he's not going to change. And that's how, you know, that's how I see Wanda. She didn't think anything was wrong. Maybe that's because of her background, the socioeconomic background, the family background, the family dynamic. You know, I don't know. Maybe her brother Bill was violent toward her, and so she became violent toward other people when she didn't get her way or things didn't go her way or she didn't get what she wanted. And a couple of times in the in the opinions, they refer to her violent when she didn't get what she wanted. So right. um, her her state post conviction was denied. Okay. And okay. then so she gets out of Oklahoma in this case and goes to federal court. So did she think she was going to have a little bit more luck getting out of Oklahoma? No, I. they raised all the same issues that she raised in her state post-conviction. And um, the federal court did not grant relief, and the Tenth Circuit affirmed the federal court's denial. And again, a lot of it was, you know, the mental background, the educational background. Those are things that she should have told her attorney. And her mother should have told her attorney. And apparently her mother, Wanda and her mother, both gave the attorney the puppy and rainbow story of her life. Normal childhood, did well in school, graduated high school, got some college credits, got a certificate of some sort in nursing, 
which is not easy. That's a lot of science and math. Um, and so that's, you know, that was, that was what Mr. Carpenter presented. Mm-hmm. And he didn't go looking for, he didn't go looking for the, uh, worms in the apple. Mm-hmm. And the federal courts, you know, basically found that he, he didn't do anything wrong. Right. That anything right. wrong was, you know, Wanda Jean didn't tell him. And that a lot of the records that were submitted by the defense in the state of state post conviction and the federal post conviction would have done more harm than good on that continuing threat aggravator. Now, the execution date was requested after this. Uh, Correct. Any big come out of that like uh, obviously the next big thing is the clemency hearing but uh, the execution date was requested did Wanda right. or the, have you know big to do about that um, well I think the, the, the procedure in Oklahoma when you exhaust your um, state and federal appellate remedies uh, or review then mm-hmm. you are the the governor requests that an execution date be set, and the execution date is set. I don't think Oklahoma doesn't appear to be one of those states like Texas where they file a motion in the, the prosecution files a motion in the trial court to have an execution mm-hmm. date set by the trial court, giving the uh, convicted person an opportunity to oppose setting the date or to raise uh, issues regarding conviction and sentence. Um, right. But when when the execution date was set, uh, Mr. Presson and Mr. Jackson went back to federal court and they did obtain funding for a Dr. Martin Krinsky to uh, provide them with an evaluation of Wanda Jean in 2000. And Dr. Krimsky is the doctor who appeared at the clemency hearing. Another interesting thing is that um, Dr. Robin Myers, he was one of the, I want to say preachers, I think he was with United Church of Christ. Yes. Yes. uh, Who appeared in the documentary. He was also seeking funding from the federal court as a theologian to speak on uh, Wanda Jean's behalf or testify on her behalf at the clemency hearing. So that kind of interested me. The court denied the funding for him. Mm -hmm. But I find it kind of interesting that this um, theologian would want federal court to pay him to advocate on behalf of a death penalty, right, uh, a person right. facing execution. And, you know, the only thing I can think is, uh, call me jaded, but, you know, he was going to try and get paid if he could. Very true. Very true. Now, um, and kudos to him for continuing to be involved in attempting to save her life 
um, even though he wasn't going to be paid for it. Right. Now, we're going to get to the clemency here. I want to ask you a question right off the bat, though. And I don't know if you remember this. It's a very vague uh, excerpt I remember from the documentary. But the brother said, basically, I don't care if they kill her. You know, I just want her in prison. You know, I want her behind bars. Obviously, the mother said, you know, I believe the mother said, yeah, definitely. I want her put to death and what have you. Do you believe well, that? Actually, they had a lot mm-hmm. as, as I recall on camera, Gloria's mother said, you know, as long as she stays in prison, I don't really care if she's executed or not. Okay. And um, now, the brother, Greg to... Wilson, initially said, as long as she stays in prison, I don't care. One of Gloria's sisters, I believe her name was Mary, said lethal injection was too easy. Mm-hmm. That Mary exactly. wanted them to go back to electrocution. Mm-hmm. And then after the execution, Greg changed his mind. He had become pretty angry and bitter. But he also made a right. statement at the uh, at the clemency hearing was she's already slipped through the cracks one time. I don't want to see her slip through the cracks again. Right. I remember that as well. I remember that as well. Do you believe and, cause they had a lot? It seemed in the documentary they had a lot of confidence. It seemed like you know towards the towards cl- getting closer to the clemency hearing. I remember him saying, "Well, you know, Oklahoma has, I believe he said, only one execution. Have they done clemency at that point?" So he kind of seemed a little nervous as we got closer to the clemency, but they seemed very upbeat. Yeah. They seemed going to be able to do it. Do you believe that there was a real possibility that she was going to get clemency? No. And actually, as I recall, um, they said Oklahoma was not a state that grants clemency. Right, right. They said like one out of everybody that had previously tried for right. it. Right. I, I don't recall them even mentioning the one. Um, yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, they they thought that they were, because they thought that the IQ and the need for mental counseling at age 15 were their ace in the hole. Mm-hmm. And, right. um, that's the kind of myopic defense attorney way of looking at it. In a defense attorney's mind, any deficit in IQ, whether it's at 8 years old or 10 years old or 12 years old mm-hmm. or 30 years old, equals mental retardation. Even if it doesn't fall oh. below 70, um, you know, and I guess because generally most attorneys, although I've known a few who who are the exceptions, most attorneys are generally high IQ individuals anyway. Right, absolutely. So perhaps to someone with 120 IQ when they were 13 years old, who's probably at 140 now, they think an 80 IQ is really, really low. But right. an 80 IQ is only 20 points below the average 
Because, mm-hmm. again, the average IQ of the average person is 100. Okay. And another interesting thing about IQ tests, there was a lot of uh, research done many years ago that there was like a cultural bias. Um, When I took the IQ test at age 14, I stood a better chance of doing well and scoring high than a an African-American student the same age, even going right. to the same school because of differences in socioeconomic, culture, whatever. Um, and I think there may be a little bit of truth to that. But I think they've also changed the testing that's done now to try to correct the problems that were there. But, you know... Now- I, I, I was going to say, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's true because when I went to the high school that I went to, you had to have an a high IQ above 120 at age 13 or 14. And um, uh, we had quite a few African-American students across all grades. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we were... Uh- on the majority Caucasian, but we had Asian, African-American, and Hispanic students kind of balancing us out a little bit. Um, but that was more because African-American students didn't want to go to that school. Right. You know, the, uh, they, a One lot of them, I, a couple that I went to school with said, you know, why is this guy going to Franklin? He should be going to Walker. He should be playing football. One thing I want to point out. I said, I don't know. Talk to him. One thing I want to point out, and I may have misinterpreted this, but I believe it was pretty darn close. It was actually, and this came from from Preston, who was driving a car, I believe, at the time. He said it was pretty close to her getting clemency. Am I remembering that correctly? She got, like it was like she got one. Person. No, she got one vote. Yes, and I believe there were only there were supposed to be five members. I think right, I, I only two saw two. and heard four votes, okay. but she got one yes and three no's. Okay. And apparently, okay. uh, number five phoned it in, and he voted no. So she got okay. four no's and one yes. Okay. Okay. Now, obviously, this is the end. She was put to death. Uh, now, at the end of the documentary, obviously, he I believe he said something when he was in the hotel room awaiting to go see her executed. He mm-hmm. said something about there had a few things in the works still. And, you know, obviously, Jesse Jackson was out there getting arrested and they were uh, protesting, so on and so forth. But what would have those few things have been if, you know, well, the clemency was a shot? What would those few things he would have been talking about? One of the things that they did is that they tried to get the clemency proceeding reopened. 
mm-hmm. because the uh, prosecutor had said that she graduated from high school and earned enough college credits to get some kind of certificate and that that mm-hmm. was untrue. And um, they also tried to uh, file a a motion with the federal court to recall their mandate on her federal habeas appeal to uh-huh. present the ineffective assistance of counsel claims and the mitigation evidence. Uh-huh. And okay. that was not successful. That was denied by the uh, 10th Circuit Court of Appeal on January 4th, 2001. Um, they had appealed that. No, January the 11th was the day of. I think they filed a a request to reopen the clemency proceeding. Okay. Okay. And the the federal district judge, Judge Leonard, denied it. They went to the Tenth Circuit. The Tenth Circuit denied it. And then they were appealing to the Supreme Court. And that brings up two interesting things that I noticed when I watched it this weekend. In the first one, when they're getting ready for the clemency hearing, and I believe it was Steve Presson, or maybe David Presson, um, she had written some uh, speech she wanted to make to the clemency board. And David Presson was suggesting a change at the end to saying please let me live right? instead of I want to live or something along those lines. And if you noticed, if you watched it, Wanda got very testy. Yes, that's what I was talking about. She got very testy with that. She said something about them every time. Y'all keep changing it, and I'm getting tired of it changing. And then if you notice, Robert Jackson and David Preston were in there with her, and, of course, they're both trying to appease her. No, 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 it's fine, it's fine. Go ahead, it's, mm-hmm. it's perfect. Go ahead, do it the way you want to do it. It's, it's your, this is you, you got to do it. But I noticed her getting chesty, and I mean, you know, yeah, I keep having to, I'm not changing this again. I'm tired of changing this. I keep having to change it. Okay, that's a glimpse of the real Wanda Jean. That is yeah, probably... I mean, I think- a glimpse of the Wanda Jean that Gloria lived with. Not the, not the, woo, I'm a Christian, we're going to pray, all that good stuff. But, yeah, something small and innocuous, mm-hmm. like changing a phrase or having to change the- things oh. sets her off. And, and you notice how they both tried to appease her. You don't have to change anything. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's perfect the way it is. Leave it the way it is. It's your words. You have to be comfortable with it. You leave it the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. And then I noticed, you know, she gave the speech, and then toward the end she dropped her voice. She was yeah. keeping her voice real low like she was trying to seem meek and mild. And then she dropped it so you couldn't even understand what she was saying because it was hoarse. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think that was a calculating move to seem meek and mild to the parole board. Right. But the final thing, right before the execution when David was in the hotel room and he was on the phone with her and saying, we have these things in the works, 
Um, right. We just got this word from the Tenth Circuit. Now we filed in the uh, Supreme Court, and we're waiting to hear. We think a judge there wants to give us a stay. And mm-hmm. Wanda Jean, well, how long is that going to take? And then she says, yeah. how did you file it? Or how was mm-hmm. it filed? And then that was when the phone cut off. But the interesting thing, when they were talking to her about the procedures, she mm-hmm. had no problem understanding them. Right. And right, that, that statement on that phone call, she understood the process. When you're dealing with mental infirmity, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. It's not just, you know, you're you're dumb and so we can't execute you. Right. And I know they kept saying, We're not calling you dumb, we're not calling you dumb. But right. um right. if you, you have to to have a mental infirmity not only to be incompetent to stand trial, but incompetent to be executed you have to not be able to understand the process. You have to not be able to understand what is about to happen. You have to not be able to assist your attorneys in your defense. And Mm -hmm. in each and every one of those areas, I watched the execution of Wanda Jean, and the impression Mm -hmm. I got was a woman who understood what was going to happen and why it was going to happen. Although mm-hmm. she's, she wants to, you know, reduce her culpability by continuing to claim self-defense. Mm-hmm. But again, that's a calculated thing. I did really she murder her in cold blood. blood. She was attacking she was me with a hand rake. Hand, yeah. yeah she was able to assist her attorneys. She was able to write out her speech to the clemency mm-hmm. board. And she right. was actually very protective of her own words because when David mm-hmm. Presson or Stephen Presson suggested a change, she got she testy got about it. Mm-hmm. And she understood okay. the process because well, she you know, asked David Presson how, how something was filed at the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, you know, the very last, and I call it an act of defiance, but, you know, it probably was just Wanda being, you know, as David Preston said, Wanda being Wanda, you know, she kind of had fun with the end, you know, on the execution table. And that definitely seemed to tick off, uh, that seemed to tick off Gloria Leather's brother. Uh, I Correct. Greg Wilson. Taking it seriously. I I think what ticked off Greg Wilson more, though, was that she had the audacity to have her last words be, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. I think that was more offensive to him than her clowning around on the gurney right before she was executed. Right. Right. And, I mean, Preston said that that was more something for him because apparently they became pretty close, uh, pretty close friends. You know, as I can imagine, you know, somebody fighting for my life, yeah, I'm going to 
we're going to become pretty tight, you know, if we're going into that battle. Yeah. So, I mean, I, but I believe he even said, you know, that was something for me. You know, I can imagine. Well, I, the, the, version, the version that I found on YouTube, the, the sound, he was talking about the last thing that the sound worked on was he said, uh, and then she was gone. And, and from that point, there was no sound. Mhm. Okay. So uh, that was that was pretty much all I I got. Um, right. But yeah, right. I, you know, her doing whatever she was doing. I mean, quoting Jesus Do on the cross that, is not. I think more cool to me. And I feel like I feel like she may have softened a little bit in prison, and that she did care about you know pressing her uh, uh, fellow attorneys, and even her family, even though her family did seem a little bit, uh, she did seem like she even got a little peeved at her family at parts in the show, you know. Uh, and the same with the attorneys. The attorney of the scene in the church when the attorneys just don't know what to do with anybody. <laughs> they just seem completely right, right. like, what's on here? That, that yeah. was hilarious. There, there were issues. I mean, the family was very emotional about it, and right. I, I feel for the families of people who are executed. And you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how well you know. I don't celebrate an execution. Right. Right. Absolutely. I yeah. don't. I don't. Um, you know, I. I want to see justice for the victims. And I want to see uh, the punishment meted out by the jury carried out if it's warranted. Um, but I I don't celebrate it. Right. And, you know, um, you'd have to be a sick individual to celebrate somebody's death. Nobody celebrates yeah. it. It's just, you know, if that's the... If and I don't, I you know, I I I don't gloat, I don't gloat about it to anybody. Uh, I've right. been on you know death penalty boards for years, and generally when the execution takes place, I'm silent mm-hmm. unless I post facts to correct a misstatement posted by an advocate for the person. But even then, I do it as uh, tactfully uh, as possible and diplomatically as right. possible. But, um, you know, I feel for her family. They were, I, they didn't want to believe that the Wanda that they loved and grew up with could do something like this. But as for her softening, I think being in an institutional environment had a lot to do with that. Right. Had she gone what? back out into the free world likely she would have fallen in love again. It wouldn't have ended well because it's not them, it's her because she needed to change and then the cycle would have begun again. And she would slip through the cracks and another person would have lost their life. One last question I have, though, before we wrap things up and put a bow on this episode... Do you believe that the death penalty was the right 
scenario, or do you believe, could have been put in a mental hospital for the rest of her life? Or um, even been life in prison? Okay. Um, I do believe that the uh, death penalty was the appropriate punishment for Wanda Jean for the murder of Gloria Leathers. She mm-hmm. killed Detra Pettis in And ladies and gentlemen, I want to apologize. It appears that uh, Lisa has dropped off the uh, off the air. Obviously, we were able to get the answer to the question, though. She does believe that the uh, death penalty was the accurate penalty in this case, I believe, because we were in overtime is the reason why we lost, uh, well, lost her. Uh, But before we go, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Lisa's outro. Uh, Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and myself, Michael Carnahan. If you do like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Of course, go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or even follow her on Twitter at O'BrienLAnn or you can follow us on Twitter at TalkRadio49. Join us for next week's episode, episode 22, State of Arkansas versus Stacey Johnson. We'll see you next week, ladies and gentlemen, and I thank you for listening. Where were you when the world stopped turning? That September day Were you in the yard With your wife and children Were working on some stage in L.A. Did you stand there in shock At the sight of that black smoke Rising against that blue sky Did you shout out in anger And fear for your neighbor Or did you just sit down and cry Did you weep for the children?